I have been doing a little series on a, a Sunday evening um, on the letters that Christ wrote to the churches at the beginning of the book of the Revelation. And um, as I have the ministering this morning, I thought I would conclude that series. And um, so this morning we're going to be reading from Revelation chapter 3. For those who are new to church, Revelation is the last book of the Bible. So if you've got your Bible with you, go, don't start at Genesis and work to the front, the back, pardon me. Start at the back and you'll find Genesis is there. Um, pardon, you'll find Revelation is there, my apology. And we, um, we've been looking at these letters. There are seven literal churches, geographical places. Uh, these letters were written by the, I'm not going to just say the resurrected Christ, but the exalted Christ. And um, he had a message for each of these churches. And there's many ways these letters can be applied. They can be applied to a congregation, a local congregation, as they would have been when they were written. Um, they can be to a group of churches. We'd probably maybe call them a, a denomination today. Could be written to a national church. And the amazing thing is, when I read them, I think sometimes they were written to me. So we don't just focus on what type of church they're talking about. Maybe we should focus a little on ourselves and say, what type of Christian am I? So what we're sharing is it condemn anyone. It's just to encourage one another in the things of God. So if you have your Bible, we're in Revelation chapter 3. We're going to look at the church at uh, Philadelphia and the church at Laodicea. So let me read to you, if I may, first. To the angel of the church of... Pardon me. Uh, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my commands to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour that is coming upon the whole earth to test those who are living on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. He who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will I leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the first one, a little later, if we time allows, we'll look at Laodicea. We have um, this, this church, which is a church of brotherly love. Philadelphia, speaking of brotherly love. And um, when I was at Bible school thousands of years ago, I actually went to uh, Stockholm in Sweden, where there was a very famous church, and it was called Philadelphia. As my first really introduction, there was actually a church called Philadelphia. Now they picked the right name. I've never been to a church called Laodicea yet. Um, but they picked a, a church that was Jesus spoke of very highly. So I'd like to just walk through this letter and just see where it can apply to us as a congregation, apply to us as individual Christians. 
On each of the letters, as we've seen in the evening, Christ would always identify himself first. Now, we identify ourselves at the end of the letter. So it's, dear sir, da-da-di-da-di-da, at the bottom, yours sincerely, Gordon Neal. Okay, so if you want to know, and I used to, when letters were about, before the emails came, you often would look at the end of the letter first to see who was right, who'd written to you. Having identified that, then that would give your response, obviously, as you read the letter. But Jesus does this the other way around. He identifies himself at the beginning rather than signing off at the end. And on each of the letters, and if you haven't been with us on an evening, it's a good thing maybe to have a read of each of these letters. So the first thing he says there is, uh, there, to the angel of the church at Philadelphia, these are the words of him who is holy and true. Jesus wanted this congregation to know, first of all, that he was holy and he was true. I don't know about you, but I find today it's very hard to know who's telling the truth. Um, I have a newspaper. Um, are they telling me the truth? I watch the news. Are they telling me the truth? I can go online to different um, news agencies. Are, are they telling me the truth? And it comes back, you know, that sometimes you just, your head spins a little bit. Um, who's telling the truth today? I'm not going to comment on what the truth is in that sense, but it, it, sometimes it's difficult. You know, they talk about fake news. Well, anything fake isn't true. And Jesus declares straight away, clear all these attitudes straight away these are the words of him who is holy and true his truthfulness comes out of his holiness um, you, the two are linked clearly I try to be holy not doing a very good job you say I agree I try to be truthful doing my best to be truthful but Jesus is not trying to be holy Jesus isn't trying to be truthful he is holiness he is true and everything that he says now is true. There can be no contradiction to what he says. If we were to ask you your opinion of this congregation, or the whole church, there would be various things. Some of you are evangelistically would say, oh, we need more evangelism. Those who are missionaries say, we need more missions. Those who like prayer say, oh, we need more intercession. There's lots of things that in our burdens that are on our heart, we would like to see more of. But at the end of the day, there's only one person who really knows what this church is like. There's only one person that only really knows what Gordon Neal is like. And that's the one who is holy and the one who is true. And when he makes a judgment of me, it is not criticism, it's truth. When he tells me I've fallen short, it's not him picking on me, it's him being truthful. And it's in his holiness and truthfulness that we find acceptance of any criticism that he might bring towards us. He also adds another identification, not only that he is holy and true, but he says there that he holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Again, this is a remarkable verse. It's a straight quote from Isaiah 22, 22. And here we find the Holy Spirit takes this verse from Isaiah and brings it straight into the book of the Revelation. Now the key of David, etc. is something that we won't have time to look at and the reason we won't have time to look at it, I don't know anything about it. If I did, I might go on another 10 minutes but I haven't had time to discover it. But I know this, that it's from Scripture. It's speaking of David who was the king after God's own heart and I'm trying to answer the question as I speak now. But most of all, he's saying that I have that key. I say what opens, I say what closes. 
So having established his holiness, his truthfulness, he now declares his authority. In other words, I say it's shut, it stays shut. If it opens, it's open. End of story. And he comes to this church, having established those tr great truths, having told them, listen, I'm in charge, I'm Lord, I'm sovereign, now listen to what I have to say. And those same words come to my life and your life. He will close and he will open. And what he opens, no one will shut. In other words, he is in control. He is in charge. He is Lord of all things. Then he has no criticism of them at all. We have no condemnation of them at all, only a commendation. He doesn't come and tell them that their robes are unclean or, or the this or the that. No, no. He goes straight from saying these things to them and says, I know your deeds. I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. He'd already said those words from Isaiah. See, Philadelphia stood, I understand it, where great, five great roads crossed. And this was an opportunity for evangelism, to share the gospel with all the traders who would, take, who would gossip the gospel around the Roman Empire. So he said to them, I, I know your deeds. I, see, I have a place before you, an open door that no one can shut. So he says, I know your deeds. It's a great thing to know that Jesus knows everything about us. So I think about it, and I'm not sure I want him to know everything about me. But we can't have one without the other. We can't have God knowing everything about our problems and our needs and our problems and our challenges and not accept the fact he knows where we're strong and he knows where we're weak. So he says, I know your deeds, but he doesn't condemn them. He says, you come now, he says, he says I know that you have little strength. His diagnosis was, in Laodicea, you're rich, but really you're poor. It was a different comment altogether. He says, I know you have little strength. And there must be folk in this room who've been Christians, maybe a long while, and you think, do you know, that's me, little strength. You know, I was sharing the first service that uh, com coming up soon, I'm going to visit a church. I'm going to speak in a church that I know will have eight people if they all turn up. But you don't measure a church by its size. This church are standing firm for God in a very, very needy area. And I applaud them because they're doing God knows their deeds, God knows what they're doing. And they might say we are of little strength in that sense, in comparison to churches around them, but they're standing for Christ. And you may feel that. You may feel I'm not a very strong Christian. I don't feel I'm making an impact. Let me tell you, first of all, that's how Philadelphia felt. He said, you have little strength. But then he tells them, you have kept my word. That's his combination. You have kept my word, very important, and not denied my name. And in verse 10, since you have kept my commandments. So there's three my's. He says, you may have little strength. You may not be one of the super, if there is such a thing as a super church, and even as I say it, I'm wishing I hadn't said it. He's saying, listen, I know your deeds. I know you're not strong. But listen, you have done something very important. You've kept my word. Kept my word. You have not 
denied my name. And in verse 10, you have kept my commandments. This church were worthy of applause because they had realised that the most important person in their church wasn't Gordon Neal. The most important person in their church was the Lord Jesus Christ. And we keep his word, we keep his name, and we keep his commandments. And if we do that, we will find ourselves strengthened and encouraged and we will have commendation after commendation from the Lord. You have kept my word. The pandemic, I'm sure, has thrown our routines out in so many areas. Really has. You know, our routine. For some of you watching at home, you've maybe made the decision not to come back to the building that you're going to just visit us online. Well, we hope you'll review that and maybe join us soon. Uh, there is something about being together that is just so exciting and sharing in this worship. But, you know, we, we need to keep his word. And one of the things that may have drifted, I don't know, is our Bible reading. So, oh, Gordon, you're not going to tell us to read our Bible again. Yes, I am. Read your Bible. Keep his word. As we know his word, we'll be in a position to keep his word in that way. Very, very important. And maybe that's a little uh, a promise you can make the Lord now, that you'll have a daily intake of his word. I'm not going to say how long to read his word. I'm certainly not going to tell you what version to read. That's all law legalism. But I'll tell you this, every one of us would benefit, including me, if I spent more time reading his word, that I might keep his word, not deny his name, and keep his commandments. There were no words of correction for them. No condemnation, no words of correction. And then he comes to them in verse 11 with a tremendous statement in verse 11. He says, I am coming soon. Okay, so there's a promise, I am coming soon. This church, this denomination in which we belong to, we believe in the second coming of Christ. You might say, well, it's been 2,000 years at least since these words were said. Uh, coming soon, 2,000 years? I, I cannot tell you. I can't explain that. You know, there's verses that talk about a day in their time with God, etc., etc. All I know this, and I don't, I'm not being clever when I say this, he's a week nearer coming than he was last week. So a week has gone when I could have been reading my Bible, witnessing, praying, and forgiving people quicker. We have that chance. He says he's coming and he's coming soon. We have to live as a church and as Christians that he is coming soon. Anything else, then the flesh will just bring us back into mediocrity. So he says there, I am coming soon. Take hold on what you have so that no one will take your crown. We have a crown to be won. You say, oh, I don't want a crown. We, 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 you know, I, I may have even said it, you know, oh, you know, I don't want a crown. I'm just glad to get into heaven. And for some of you, that might be quite an achievement, just getting in. But the Bible tells us that we are to live our Christian lives in a way that will glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And he himself is saying there are crowns to be won. There is applause to be made. The illustration I often use is that of martyrdom, the martyrs. How, you know, how can I compare anything I have done compared to those who have lost their lives? I think of some of my friends who died at our mission station in what was Rhodesia. How can I compare being stuck in a traffic jam with what they did? They laid down their lives. 
And so we have to stand back here and we have to acknowledge what God has done for us. And he says very simply there, to him who overcomes, take hold of what you have to take the crown. So there are crowns. The martyrs are under the altar in heaven. We have a picture of heaven. And the altar is the centre of things with God. And we find that's why the cross is the centre for us. And that's where the martyrs are, central. They have that special place. But you can live your Christian life and maybe you will receive a crown. You say, well, I'm already a king and a priest and a, yes, 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 yes. But to him that overcomes, to him that stays the course. Years ago, I was taught about you don't backslide. That was the big thing, backsliding. We have a much more sophisticated way of describing it now. I haven't quite worked out what it is, so I'm going to stick with backsliding in that way. So they're encouraged with all their goodness. He says, you've got to hold on to what you have. You do not have to turn back. Hold on. And then we find there are promises for those who stay true. Well, they're simple enough. I'm, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will I leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down from heaven. I will also write on him my new name. So we have two names. We have the name of God. We have Christ, his, my new name. Names are very important in Scripture. Again, the symbolism is, is, is rife there. I'm not talking about some mass tattooing of people with names. We're talking about a name. So who am I? My name is Gordon Howard. Phil, you might not have known my middle name was Howard. Gordon, he, Phil thought it was handsome. But it wasn't. Gordon Howard. Neal. That's how I identify myself. That's all, oh, Gordon, yeah, Gordon, Neil, yeah, yeah, got him, yeah, remember, bald head, big ears, yeah, we got him. The identification of who I am. And Jesus is saying, if you're true, if you stick with it, you're going to not only have your own name, which he speaks about in another letter, you're going to have my name upon it. I remember years ago, I was at a bus stop in Northolt, strangely enough, and I think I was coming home from work, I worked in Harrow then, and I was talking to somebody at the bus stop and I said about I was going to church. And he said these words, he said, I heard you'd got religion. Right, because at school um, it wasn't too successful. I, I had a great time, but nobody else seemed to. You know, I'd heard you'd got religion. Friends, becoming a Christian is not a religious thing, although if you put it in a dictionary, that's probably where it would come up. It's a relationship with Christ. I didn't get religion. I receive the Lord Jesus Christ as my saviour and we seek to live for him. Well, being very conscious of the time, we now look at the last letter, which is the letter to the church at Laodicea. To the angel at the church in Laodicea, write, and I just move my notes, thank you, uh, Laodicea. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Again, we have the introduction to the letter. Jesus identifying who he is. He doesn't leave that to the end. It's at the beginning of the letter. And he says there, I am the amen, the faithful and true witness. Again, talking of faithfulness, the amen is yes, means I am the yes. I am faithful witness and the ruler of God's creation. A couple of things there. We see the lordship of Christ. We see echoes of Colossians where all things were made by him, and that he is the ruler of all things. 
But the, the wonderful verse for here is this, that he comes in the ruler of God's creation. And so in this world that we live in, when we have so many, there's a conference coming up in Glasgow about global warming and etc., etc. We stand back and we, we, we applaud that. We want to join in and we want to make every effort. Of course we do. But he says the ruler of God's creation. He comes to this church and he says, listen, no matter what's going on around you, and what was going around them was the Roman Empire, which was not a nice place to be a Christian, let me assure you. If think, you think you're having a tough time at work, you want to just think back to the Roman Empire. And it was a strange thing. I remember John Lancaster saying this in college, that when the church faced its darkest hour, it grew the most and the fastest in the book of Acts, when Rome was very much, and the Jewish world was very much against them. And he says, God's, the ruler of God's creation. I'm not a scientist, but I know this. I believe God created this world. You can tie me in knots with statistics and numbers at the end of it. I have to stand back and echo the words of the book of Hebrews. By faith, we believe that God framed the worlds. I don't have to understand it. I can't understand it. My education would fall short of understanding it. But I know that he is the ruler of God's creation. And this world is his. And when the church of Laodicea were going through a tough time and were not behaving as they should, Jesus reminds them who he is. He's the Lord of God's creation. Not Caesar. Caesar was not in charge. Not the governor of Laodicea. Not whatever garrison may have been stationed in the town. He was the Lord. And that is how he would introduce himself. He had no uh, commendation for them at all. He had nothing good to say. He didn't say, you know, you have, you have, you're weak, but you've kept my word. You've kept, no, he had nothing good to say about them. Reminds me about my school reports, but that's another story. Nothing good to say. But then he comes to them and he, he speaks words of condemnation to them. He is coming to criticise them. Now remember, he's able to do that because he's the Lord of the church. He's the Lord of creation. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He is the one who purchased the church with his own precious blood on the cross. So he has every right to say it. I don't have that right. You don't have that right. He has that right. That is why criticism and judgment is a very dangerous thing for the Christian because we're actually doing something that is God's job, not ours. And we get caught up with stepping outside of the mark. Well, let me say, we were very careful with words of judgment and attitudes of judgment because judgment belongs to him. Will not the judge of all the earth do right, the scripture says. So he has every right to come to them and he does come to them. He says in verse 50, I know your deeds. Well, we heard that in a previous letter, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Well, well I probably wouldn't have written that. I would have found a more polite way to put it. But what he's saying is this. I think the authorised version spew you out of my mouth. David Paulson, who does some great teaching on this, I think you can get his CDs, they may still be available, he talks about there being two streams there, one being hot, one being cold, and if you drank the cold one, you were all right, if you drank the hot one, you'd be all right, but if you waited till they had got warmish, lukewarm, lukewarm, then it would make you sick. So we find here the Holy Spirit is taking a very natural thing that could happen and using it spiritually. So would God prefer you were cold than hot or cold? No, God isn't saying you've got a choice here. 
What is it saying? You can be a cold Christian, it's all right. No, no, no. What he's saying is, be a hot Christian. But this in-between, where you think you're hot and you think you're cold, you might as well be cold because it's of no value. You see, God only knows one temperature, if that's the right way to put it, that we might go for him with our whole hearts. The story is told of, a, I think his name was John Nelson Parr, um, who had a uh, church, which was a large church in those days in Manchester. And if ever he went to preach there, and I never did, um, he would say to the preacher before he got up to preach, he'd say, are you hot, brother? And people got word of this, and when he would say, are you hot, brother? The preacher would say, I'm red hot. And he'd say, right, go on up and go and preach. And anyway, one day somebody came and he said, are you hot? He said, I'm red hot. And he said, well, get white hot. You know, in other words, there's only, there's only, back then, the preachers were great guys. There was only one temperature. You ought to be red hot for God. And you know, you know it, and I know it, that living this lukewarm Christian life doesn't satisfy at all. You know that the happiest and most, most fulfilled days of your life was when he was first. Oh, family, of course, and career, have all of those things. But when he's first, when you're passionate to serve him, everything has added value because he is in the right place. But what was his opinion? That do you not realize, he says here, these words, he says, um, you say you are rich and have acquired wealth and do not need anything, but you do not realize that you are wretched. Wow, listen to this list. Wretched, poor, pitiful, blind, naked. What a diagnosis. They suffered, first of all, from indifference. They were lukewarm. They weren't really bothered. The church weren't bothered. They had some money in the bank. They had a nice building. They had all the trimmings or everything else. But Jesus says it's not enough. They were lukewarm. There was indifference. But then, following on from the indifference, they had a spirit of independence. As we read that in verse 17, you say, I am rich, I have wealth, I do not need anything. I don't know how much money this church has got in the bank. I don't know, I don't need to know. I'm not that bothered actually. As long as they've got tea bags, I don't mind. Scott, can you always have a tea bag? All right, okay, that's it. But let me tell you this, you know, um, we do not say we have need of nothing. We don't say as a church, we don't say as a denomination, as our Elam movement, we're one of the largest um, charities in the country, etc., 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 etc. Meaningless, pointless. It's how our hearts are. And we do not say we have need of nothing. We are in need of a fresh move of God's Spirit today. As we were yesterday, as we will be tomorrow, as we will be on Christmas Day. But you see, they had an independence. I don't need anyone. I was brought up to be very independent. I would walk home rather than ask somebody for a lift. I'd push the car home on my own rather than ring somebody. Just the way I was brought up. I'm not saying I was brought up right, but, you know, get on with it, deal with it uh, in that way. But when I'm a Christian, that, that goes out the window. I'm part of a family, I'm part of a church that will support me and help me. So they had indifference, they had independence, and then it says they had ignorance, which is very dangerous. But they did not realise, again in that verse 17, but you do not realise, they didn't realise their condition. 
They didn't realise how bad things had got. You know, wretched. Oh, what a term. Imagine being a member of the wretched church or the pitiful church or the poor church or the blind church. Or, well, we'll miss out the naked church. We're certainly not going to have that church. No, that was their description. You have a name, but you've got nothing. So what happens then? What do we do? Let's sell the building if we're in Laodicea. Let's sell the property, give it to the poor, and don't anybody say amen there, and don't stop me at the door to talk about that, because I'm going home in a minute. No. What does Jesus say to them? What, what hope is there for a church that's poor and wretched and all those other things? You know, lukewarm, he wants to spit him out. Well, is there any hope for that church? Of course there is hope. And the hope is here. Very simple. Whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. In other words, everything he'd said about them came out of his love for them because they care, because he loved them in that way. And he tells them in verse 8, I counsel you, take some advice, leaders here. There's, there's hope. You're all of these things, no exaggeration, this is what you like. But this is what you do to buy from me gold refined in fire so that you can become rich. White clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you may see. Each of those answers the spirit of independence, the spirit of indifference and the spirit of ignorance in this. He comes in and he says, there's a way out. And he says, buy of me. Now please, Jesus isn't selling anything. So well, he says, buy. No, 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 no. I think this is what he means. If you don't agree, please, you may well be right and I'm wrong. Well, I think what he's saying here is this. It's going to cost you something to get back where you were. Don't think it's a free ticket. You're going to have to repent. You're going to have to turn around. You're going to have to change your behaviour, Laodicea. And whether that's a congregation or Gordon Neal or you in church this morning or at home, that's what it is. Buy of me. It's going to cost you something. But if you buy the gold you'll be rich again. If you buy the white robes, you'll be pure again. And if you have the eye salve, the ointment for your eyes, you will see truly the situation and not be in any way fooled by the situation. And so there is even hope for them in this way. Whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. And then it comes the words, be earnest, and repent. This is not going to be an easy thing, Laodicea. You're not going to just walk in one. You're not going to walk out the front in some service and, you know, some famous preacher put his hands on your head and everything's cured. That can happen. You know, I know people where it has happened. But he says, be earnest. Laodicea, you've not been earnest. You've not been, you've not really taken this business of being my church, being a Christian seriously. Now be earnest about it. Mean business. You know, because it is the only way out. Then comes a famous verse in verse 20. Here am I. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will hear my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Famous verse. It's been preached as an evangelistic text by many. But it's speaking to Christians here. He's speaking to this church. He's saying, listen, I'm outside. What a thought that Christ was outside of this church. They had to knock on the door of his own church. Now, if I forgot my keys and I knocked on the door, 
I hope the wife would let me in. I hope she would. I think she would. She would today anyway, let me in. And he says, I stand at the door and knock. He's outside. Hang on. He's supposed to be inside. That's how bad things had got. Please, is Jesus outside of your life knocking on the door to get in? Really, he should be in the centre of our lives. That's what being a disciple is. Behold us, if he opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. That's the fellowship. I'm eating with him. You can be restored. This communion can be back to you and me again. Restoration. But you've got to let me in. There's a famous picture, um, forgive me, I shouldn't name it, but I can't, where there's a picture of Jesus standing with a lantern knocking on a door. And in that picture, there is no handle on the outside. The handle's on the inside. In other words, he cannot come in to your life unless you let him. For any who are not Christians here this morning, may I say that there's a, a little window here maybe for you to understand what's happening. He's standing outside your life and he wants to come in. Be earnest. Repent. Say, I didn't realise I'd fallen short of God's standards. We all have. That's why Christ died for us. He's knocking. I should do this, maybe. He's knocking. Christian, are you saying, well, not today, Lord. I'll let you in on Wednesdays and Sundays. No, no. He should be inside, not outside knocking. You've listened well. I'm a, have I said I'm about to finish yet? Good, I haven't, because I, if I did, I, I didn't mean it. And there we come to the, the ending on each of the letters. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. What a privilege. When Jesus had been to the cross and died for our sins, rose again, because he rose again, because he had no sin, he didn't die for his sin. If he had died for his own sins, he'd have stayed dead. But because he died for our sins, he rose again. And it tells us that he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. When we have the occasion when Stephen is martyred, we hear of Jesus standing to greet him. But his normal posture, if I may say this in a spiritual sense, he's, he's at the right hand of the Father. And what a thrill to think. Again, do not be offended by my phraseology here. It's almost as if he says, now, oh, you've overcome, you've lived your Christian life, you've done your best, you've got a crown. And then he says here, to sit down in my father's throne, sit with me on my father's throne. I, I have this picture that Jesus is sat next to his heavenly father, not a literal seat, I don't think, you know. And he says, move over. Gordon's arrived. Now, there's millions of us, so you understand that this is not, it's figuratively speaking. But what a thought that when you and I pass away or when Jesus comes and we have been overcomers and we've sought to live for him with all our weaknesses and our failures, we can, he can say to us, he's an overcomer, move over. There's room for you here. People think heaven is lying on a beach in the Bahamas. No, it's not. Heaven is to think that there is the possibility if I live for him with earnestness and desire, keep a short 
list of sins by repenting and forgiving and serving him, there is that possibility of a crown, the possibility of a crown, but even more. He might say, come and sit next to me, Gordon. Who, me? And if it's me, I don't think it's going to be me, but it might, it might be you if you live for him.